Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm your co-host, Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello, everyone. And today we'll be bringing you a review of Arboretum. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing lately. So, Um, first of all, we just finished a really fun game. One of my many Kickstarters, Small Star Empires. Right, which is not Tiny Epic Galaxies, and I will forever equate those two in my head. Um, Nor is it Pocket Imperium. That's true. I really would not have guessed that there would be such a niche for tiny, stellar Imperiums. I don't know, I'm out of synonyms. Yeah, and all three of them are Kickstarter-funded, surprisingly enough. And the ways to play all three of them are very different. There's probably an analysis there somewhere. Yeah. This is a really quick game. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, tops. And the way that you play it is you have your map of your galaxies and you just move your ship. So you have hexagons, you go through any straight path all the way through or stopping wherever you want along it. There's no distance requirements or anything like that. The only things that will stop your movement are that you can't go over anyone else's territory that they've already marked with a colony, nor can you go over certain obstacles if you're playing with the expansions. Right. So it's very much a positioning-based game. There's no direct combat mechanic. There's no real way to interact with your opponent other than blocking off the potential routes that they could take. So it becomes a very strategic, almost chess-like, I felt, when we were playing it because we were very pensive about our moves. We were trying to see four or five moves ahead, okay, well, if I move my piece here, then I can block off your route to this thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a lot of that forethought that goes into building your, your small star empire. Yeah, it's a game that I realized, I was like, this is actually a lot more thinky than you would expect from such a game that's, you know, 15 minutes. It's something that you're actually really thinking about every single move. You're thinking about where you're going, where you're going to go from there, like what are your possible opponent's moves, are they going to block you here? Are they going to take this nebula? Are they going to take this really good star system or anything like that? And I was very surprised at how much you got to think about where you're placing it. We were silent throughout most of the game. Let's see, I'm going to go from here to here, and then he's probably going to go here to here. He's looking at this. There are four pieces that are moving pretty much in total. Yeah, pretty much. And it's just a lot of fun. And the blocking of other people is also really shown here like you're really trying to both screw your uh, opponent or opponents uh, because it plays up to four people and while you're doing that you're still trying to get the best positions that you can because just screwing someone else isn't going to be able to win you the game right as a surprising amount of elegance for such a very small box and i think all well on its way to becoming one of my favorite just quick oh we've got 15 minutes busted out type of games yeah i agree it was our first playthrough of it, but I really enjoyed it. Oh, me too. You were also telling me about a game that you've been playing In the Name of Odin, yes, I believe. Yeah. In the Name of Odin by NSNK Games. You're all Jarls, and you're trying to get the most favor from Odin. Appropriate. To become the next like head Jarl or something along those lines, or king or whatever. Sure. And the way you do that is through a few different things. You can get victory points or favor through building buildings, having certain long ships, doing certain actions through your heroes, and most importantly, going on raids. 
Well, of course. I mean, it's Vikings. Yeah, exactly. It's Vikings, and it's really cool because the raids each had, like, you know, you're going to Paris and you're raiding them. You're going to all these different parts of the real Europe. Like Paris, you need a much larger army than you would for some podunk town on the Lithuanian coast. Sure. It's a lot shorter than I would have expected for it as well. It's only really played in about an hour. We took a little bit longer just because of the fact that it was our first time ever playing. We have to go through the rules and everything like that. But the game itself, I think it could pick up pretty quickly. It's not a very complicated game once you know the way you're playing. The basis of the game is that you have a hand of six cards, and these are your actions. This is all you can do. The cards each have two symbols on them. A top symbol and a bottom symbol. The top symbol is usually either a blue, gray, or red token. And those are for getting warriors. And you play those cards during your turn. When you do, if you play two of a kind, so two blues, you get three vikings. If you play one, you get one. If you play three cards of the blue color, you would get six. Okay, so it really benefits you to kind of focus on... Mm -hmm. collecting cards of a, of a like color exactly and then you can also trade once per turn one of your cards to a line of four showing cards so you could be like i really want the one that's right there put one of your cards down take that one back and you can use that one so another way of mixing up what you have and what you don't in order to raid you need to have a long ship as well as a hero and the required number of uh, different soldiers once you have all that and you go on a raid, you declare it, you put all of your soldiers back, the raid is successful. But how successful depends on the other players. Right, you were saying this, and they can kind of throw out cards of their own and say, all right, I'm going to choose this symbol, mm -hmm. and then you have to match that by playing another card from your hand. Yes. Otherwise, you lose points, right? Yep. It goes up to three cards that can be played. Each player can only choose one. There are always going to be three cards coming out even if no one actually decides to play a card because they don't have to, they would come from the top of the deck. Oh, it's just okay. that they get to choose how difficult they want to make it. Since I believe that the top symbol is always a blue, red, or gray, which are the three most common symbols, it's a lot easier, and whenever you flip a card from the deck, it's always going to be one of those three that you have to match. Gotcha. Whereas other players can be like, I'm going to make you do a green, the building action, which is the least common. Or, you know, a ship or a, a hero action, which also can be a lot less common. And you play until you can't reveal any other raids. And once that happens, that player doesn't even end their turn. Oh, wow. It, it ends immediately. So none of this go around, finish the, finish the phase nonsense. None of that. And it's very interesting because that last player has to really balance what they want to do. Because if they want to do anything else with their cards, they have to do it before their raid. Because if they hold on to the cards, expect us to throw cards down to screw them, they then can't use those cards or those actions. It's a very interesting end of the game, I think. Definitely, definitely. And yet again, one of those kind of sort of strategic elements that we talked about in terms of next level thinking, okay, am I going to want to use this to build a thing or am I going to need that to save in case somebody tries to screw me? So. Yeah, and that's pretty much what we've been playing. At least in terms of board games. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you spoke about your new D&D &D campaign. Yes. I actually just started a Dragon Age campaign using the Dragon Age systems developed by Green Ronin. And that's been a lot of fun. It's a little bit different. Uncharted territory for me. I've mostly yeah. been a D20 gamer mm -hmm. historically. But the system here, you roll 3D6s 
yeah. and then one of them is a different color mm -hmm. uh, in this flavor it's called the dragon die mm -hmm. and then based on the result of the dragon die special things can happen if you roll doubles you can generate stunt points so it yeah. it's really nice and it kind of gives you a sort of like really flavorful way to add things to your game whether they be combat roles whether they be role-playing roles mm -hmm. spell casting you know what have you while still keeping relative simplicity to the the core mechanics so i enjoyed our first session we almost got total party killed but uh, we managed to pull it out. Thankfully, healing is fairly easy to access, even for non-healers, okay. like non-casters. Our pirate rogue actually saved two of us from death. So, Well, that's nice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to her. Definitely. My D&D &D campaign has been going pretty well. I've been enjoying it. Kemroft Bladroll, which is my character, has been pretty much fully integrated into the party, which is awesome. Okay. Of course, one of the other characters, Pip, who is a gnome rogue... Still does not trust me, but that player is never going to trust me, probably. Okay. I mean, you know, rogues, they tend to keep their mm -hmm. distance, so yeah. maybe it's just not a relationship that you build. Yeah, and my introduction to the party was me popping out from behind the tree saying, Hi, I've been following you guys. So, you know, hi. <laughs> I'm going to go with you guys now. <laughs> probably could have played that better, yeah. A little bit. We did, as a party, go and destroy Banshee last time. Impressive, because you guys are still pretty low level, right? We're at level three right now. Oh, okay. All right. So, so yeah, a party of level three adventures. You can, yeah, it, it was a bit of a challenge, especially when the Banshee knocked out Rowan, our monk, ah. with the first scream. Immediately just, boom, down on the ground, unconscious. Yep, that'll make things tough. But once he finally got back up and the rest of us, we knew that this was going to be our only fight in that day, so... We were able to use like, our bigger spells and all that and not sure. have to hold any punches. <laughs> so A little bit of metagame, but yeah, at least yeah. you know it keeps the action rolling. I mean, so. I guess I would say a wizard would know that. You know, I can only cast so many times a day. Fair. And I guess, I mean, a banshee, even if you have other fights that day, the banshee's probably going to be the hardest probably, at that point. Probably. And we were right by a church, so we could just go right there and, and rest. So. Oh, okay. It was good. And that way, actually, our... DM took a lot of inspiration from Critical Role in that he made this the Slayer's Guild. Okay. For those of you who listen to Critical Role, that is a play on the Slayer's Take, which is an organization that gives out contracts to go and kill monsters and harvest their organs and other things like that to sell to people. So we were able to harvest ectoplasm from the Banshee, which we then took back to the Slayer's Guild, and that's how we joined and now we are low-ranking members of the Slayer's Guild. All right, making progress. Advance that plot. Exactly. So it was a lot of fun. It was good, and I'm looking forward to next week's. Yeah, I'll bet. We're hoping to play bi-weekly for this mm -hmm. DA campaign. I'm definitely looking forward to the next session of that as well. Mm -hmm. And a quick mention of one other thing that we did was we went to the Renaissance Fair this weekend. We did, and that was a blast. There was a games table... Mm -hmm. Although, unfortunately, we found it late in the day, so everyone was pretty tired and we didn't yeah. have a chance to, to check any of them out. But it was just great to enjoy the atmosphere. The Maryland Renaissance Fair is actually a permanent fairgrounds. Mm -hmm. Really high quality. All the, you know, the actors were just really into it. I'll tell you, it made me wish that I had more disposable income because <laughs> I saw a real, real nice leather duster. Yep. I convinced Greg that he was going to be a rogue. At first I was saying I want to be a wizard, you know, spellcasting, that's mm -hmm. the that's really where the high fantasy's at, but yeah, I think Jacob might have brought me around and so now I'm thinking about putting together a 
a really high quality rogue costume, I guess, to wear to, to future fairs. So if, you know, if anybody wants to donate a couple thousand dollars towards that <laughs> initiative, I'm sure we'll get like a Kickstarter or a Patreon going and uh, you can help Make me Make a Greg a rogue. There you Kickstarter go. Kickstarter now. Go. Yeah, get me to level one. <laughs> yep. So it was a lot of fun. And if you have a Renaissance Fair in your area and you're into any of this kind of medieval fantasy or anything like that, we highly recommend going and check it out. Take some friends, go around, check it out, have fun. It's a blast. Absolutely. And well, that's what we've been up to lately. It's time now to take a stroll through our review of Arboretum. So this is one of our recent favorite games, I think. I played this for the first time about a year ago. I really enjoyed it when I first played it, and I know it's being reprinted, reissued? It's being reprinted currently. It just came into stores again. I recently got it from Labyrinth because I had an order for a few months, so it's back in stock for anyone who's been waiting on it. It, it is a great little game. Very simple, you know, again, not another small, small box game. It's basically just a deck of cards. Well, you say simple. Okay, okay, straightforward maybe. Now, maybe that's not even right. So let's get into exactly how this game is There's played. not a lot of moving pieces. I will give you that. All right. So with Arboretum, essentially what the goal is, is you're trying to build, appropriately, the best prize-winning Arboretum. And yes. you do so by playing different types of trees. So there are 80 cards in the deck, and there are 8 of each of 10 different colors. Yep. And the colors correspond to, you know, maple trees, oak trees, olive trees, that sort of thing. Each mm-hmm. one's a different type of tree. And so you're going to play those cards down in front of you, one per turn, adjacent to one another so that you form paths. And a path in this context is a row of trees that starts and ends with the same color and is ascending for its whole way. Yes. So you can play, for example, a one, three, five, seven. Mm-hmm. And those can be all red, or it can be red, then yellow, then blue, then red again. Either way, that's still a path. The one thing is that you do not have to keep them straight line. They it's true. can actually weave as you would expect an arboretum. So you can place them anyway orthogonally next to another card. So that means to the right, left, top, or bottom of a different card. And there are really no restrictions on how to place the cards as long as they are orthogonal. Other than that, as long as you place the cards next to each other, it's fine. It's just you have to decide how to place them to best optimize your scoring and your path to make it the best looking, pretty much. Numbers start from one and go up to eight. You can mix up any number of cards. You can have an eight long path or you can have a three long path if you wanted to. That affects the scoring, of course. And the scoring itself is based on the number of cards you have between your first card of that color and the last card of that color and in ascending order. But this is where the catch comes in or the brain burniness comes in. This game really has an interesting mechanic in which in order to score any of your trees, you have to have the most of that tree in point values in your hand. Right. And as you go through the game, each turn that you take has specific actions. You draw two cards, Mm -hmm. you play one card, and you discard one card. So you're always going to start and end your turn 
with the same number of cards in hand, which is mm-hmm. really important because you're not supposed to burn through your entire deck. Instead, you need to have those cards in hand at the end of the game so that you can earn the right to score a particular color. So like we said, for example, reds in this case is maple. If I had uh, one, three, five, seven of maple on the field, mm-hmm. in order to earn the right to score that path, I would have to reveal more point value of maple from my hand than anyone else did. So that could be if I had the eight and then each of my three opponents just had smaller numbers, or if I had the eight, but then someone else had the six and the four, they would earn the right to score. Yes. Granted, if they don't have any maple in their field, they score zero, but I also score zero. Yeah. So this is really where a lot of the next level thinking, and I hate to say it, but where a lot of the cutthroat and a lot of the bad blood <laughs> comes in with this. Because as you play through the game, you start to realize, okay, we're drawn down pretty low. I haven't seen that red six or whatever it is i bet someone's holding it and then someone is holding it and they screw you out of scoring and you're like i hate you yep and then you were thinking that oh okay so that ones are going to be the ones that you always want to put out onto the field right but wait there's more no that's a different game (laughs) true true so with the ones they can cancel out an eight if greg had that eight of maples in his hand and I had the one of maples, and let's say a two of maples, I could place the one, and that would cause Greg's eight to be worth zero points, and my two would then beat him in point value. Right. As long as you show it during the... There's different names for it. I call it the right to score or the bid to score phase. Yep. But as long as you show it during that phase, my eight is negated. Yep. And then again, it doesn't guarantee you the victory either, Mm -hmm. because it just renders that eight equal to zero points so if i have the eight you have the one and a third person has the two Mm -hmm. that third person is actually the person who earns the right to score yeah so it could even be not to your benefit you could just screw someone out of their points exactly and not only that but you have to balance placing those ones and eights as well because they actually earn you extra points if they are in your row it's true. The scoring is one point per card in the path, however long that is, up to eight. If the entire path is at least four cards long mm-hmm. and they're all the same color, then you get double. Yes. And then if the path starts with a one, it's worth one extra point. And if it ends with an eight, it's worth two extra points. So if you can play those ones and those eights safely, yes, it really behooves you to do so because you get a little bit of extra points. But... You really want to save them for insurance, so a lot of times you'll see games where people hold their 1s and 8s till the end, Mm -hmm. and then as it's revealed that people are laying down or trashing cards from the suit that you're holding, you can say, okay, it's safe now, and I can drop that card. Yes. Now, another thing about trashing the cards. This is an, an interesting mechanic because all of you have your own discard piles, and when you draw cards, you don't only draw from the main deck in the middle. You can also draw the top card or cards from the discard piles of any of the other players. That's right. So you have to be careful about what you discard. So if I have an eight, and I have the eight of maples, and I have a really good hand that I really need every other card of mine in order to score, I might throw out that eight, and Greg would go ahead and pick it up. I have to balance that, or do I really, you know, maybe I have both the eight and the one, and I know that I could just cancel out his eight or something like that. But there's always that risk. 
you know, if you throw out that one, someone else picks it up and then you finish building up your, your thing that you collected afterwards that has that same color and they play that one on your eight and negate that, that's another issue. So the game really makes you pay attention to what everyone is doing. Oh, it absolutely does. And a lot of times what you'll find is everyone kind of gets their opening hand, they maybe draw a couple cards off the top, and it starts to crystallize in their mind, okay, I've got a lot of blues, I've maybe got kind of a supporting number of yellows, so that's going to be my primary, and they start pitching everything that isn't those colors. Mm -hmm. Well, once everyone kind of starts to get those in mind, you might have one or two people vying over the same color, Mm -hmm. but generally you end up with almost all of a particular color in the discards so if you're a savvy player you can pay attention and you can say okay well i know that the two three four six and seven of orange are all in the discard piles right now and it's just a matter of digging through to get them Mm -hmm. and then you can capitalize on not even necessarily the mistakes but just the decisions that other players have made exactly you start collecting the orange or the brown that no one else wanted and now you have all the mo- the best cards there because they all thought that it was safe to throw out. And now there's the second thought. And, you know, now they, they drew the more powerful, like, larger card. Now they have to keep them in their hand, gumming up their hand and then making them throw out something else that might be useful to you or a different player. And then there's always the cards that, if we're playing with a four-player game, we have me, Greg, and two of our other friends. And like the person to my right, who was the last person to go before me, would have greens. And I have an eight of greens, but I really don't want to keep it. I can toss it out and hope that one of the other players is going to take it and almost put a little bit of pressure on them to take that card to prevent it from getting to the person who really needs it. And you know, you have that strategy as well, which is also quite interesting and playing off of other people but that could also backfire and the other the person that you don't want to have it is just gonna pick that up and possibly someone else has something to negate that yeah you never know and and it's really interesting that for a game that has so little in the way of built-in player interaction you know there's no attack cards there's no way to actually within the mechanics of the game interact with another player Mm -hmm. it's amazing how much impact your actions can have on other players yeah Um, because there really is that second level of Mm -hmm. strategy and perception and awareness that Mm -hmm. goes into making these plays yeah these separate discard piles i think especially make that happen because if you had just one discard pile and you have to keep digging through that and only the player before you could really affect what you're taking that's a different story but here your card that you last discarded is going to be on top until your next turn and you discard something else. So you're not just looking at the person next to you. You're looking at everyone around the table. It definitely does make things a lot more freeform and a lot more interactive and requires you to be aware of everything else on the board. Yeah, Those discard piles are actually also really important because the game ends when the last card is drawn from the deck. Mm -hmm. So whichever player draws that card gets to finish their turn, and then the game is over. Yep. So you can actually prolong the game if you say, oh man, the center deck is getting really low on cards, but I've got three or four turns worth of plays still Mm -hmm. in my hand. Okay, I'm going to make a conscious decision now to draw off the discards so that I can prolong the game. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a tactical decision to end the game. 
Yes. If you say, okay, I think I'm in the best board state. Looking around, I see I have the most um, cohesive paths. Mm-hmm. I feel confident about the cards that I have in my hand in terms of being able to score those paths. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and deliberately take that last card and make it so that no one else can finish whatever it is they're planning. Again, just another layer of depth uh, gets added on. Yes, and this is all done through a pretty innocuous-looking card game. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely very serene, I think, is how I would describe it. Yeah, the game itself is very serene, but under that, it is very cutthroat. (laughs) That is what I have found. It is one of those games... It's a very fun variety of cutthroat. It's not like directly you know being mean to someone it's not like what we think of as a marathrash games where you're eliminating someone or you know one wrong move can completely destroy your game probably could but in general it's very much a surprise to just about everyone that i've played with that this is the feel of this game i would agree so in order to even emphasize that let me talk a little bit about how the cards look so the cards themselves are beautiful the illustrations are amazing it's like this white background with these beautiful illustrations of the different trees with the color written underneath for anyone who's colorblind and they are really stunning it's definitely a beautiful game itself i I could see these cards if they were blown up a little bit bigger they could be prints on the wall in a gallery oh absolutely so that's beautiful. The back of it and the, even the box itself looks like to have like gold inlays almost on it. And it's really nice. And you're building things with trees. It's <laughs> not really something that you would expect to be cutthroat. Right. It's a, it's a disarming packaging. Yeah. And then you start playing it. Like the first time that I played it, I played it at Labyrinth Board Games. And it's uh, actually Kathleen's one of her favorite games ever. I can believe it. I sat down to play it, and it was like, okay, this is interesting. Okay, that's a very interesting concept. And by the end, it was just like, okay, so how am I going to screw this person while I'm not screwing this person and not screwing myself at the same time? Okay, they just screwed me. They threw out this card so that I had to pick it up because if not, uh, it would get to the person who's winning or who has the nice, best Arboretum so far. And it just became much more intense than I was expecting. That being said, it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It's got a lot of strategy. It it definitely hinges a lot on how you play it versus the random chance of what happens in the game. Well, I guess I can just go right into my summary and like what I think of the game. Sure. So I say this is a buy it for me. I definitely enjoyed the game and I've never seen a mechanic like this before. I don't think that there are really any games that I've seen that have this scoring mechanic and the fact that you have to have the cards in your hand. We're so used to as players, like our hand is our own private thing and we don't really have that much. We might have a hidden objective or something like that. But for the most part, our hand is just to be used in the game. And whatever's left at the end of the game has been unused and it's not worth anything. This game, your hand is just as important as what you put out on the board. And though it can be very difficult to teach and to get that across, I still think that it's worth the try, especially if you have the right people playing and the people that are really interested in this kind of more thinky sort of board game. You know, I think you're right. I, when you said it, I was trying to think of 
no, that can't be right. There's got to be another game out there. But I'm, I'm racking my brain, and I really can't think of another game that uses that same sort of dual system of scoring points. You know, what's on your field or what's in your play area matters almost as much as what's in your hand or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting observation. But it is definitely a buy-it from me as well. Again, I really like these sort of smaller box, elegant games with high replayability. The only caveat, like Jacob said, it's a little bit complex, and a lot of people, I've taught this to probably half a dozen people now, a lot of people do get hung up on, wait, 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 so how do I score? But because it is such a small, compact game, and because it is so relatively quick, you can play it a lot, people get used to it, and they start to kind of get their mind around that complexity, Mm -hmm. and then they really enjoy it. They start thinking about those strategies, and they start using the system to the best of its potential. So definitely a buy it from me. So Greg, a little bit of a bonus thing. How would you say to teach this game to new players? Oh, okay. I think if you're if you're going to be teaching this to new players, you really just have to break it up into parts. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to let them know, okay, you've got your hand, you've got your decks, and you've got your discard. On a turn, you're going to be doing this and this and this, and then you're going to be playing into your field and really get the fundamentals of how to play through the game, Mm -hmm. and then teach scoring as a completely separate compartment. Just because if you have that base to work with, I feel like it gives you grounding when you're hit with this, as we discussed, completely unique and really honestly very complex scoring mechanism. But if Mm -hmm. you can tie that back and say, okay, well, this is kind of overwhelming, but I can relate it to what I've learned previously about this is how you lay cards down and this Mm -hmm. is why I'm always having seven cards in hand. Like, If you can make the point that every aspect of the game design is important and was done deliberately, then I think it starts to sink for people because where they get confused and where they get lost and where they get frustrated is when they see complexity without really understanding how that complexity helps the game so i think Mm -hmm. if you tie everything all together it kind of helps give a sense of unity a sense of just appropriateness and completeness that that helps with the learning process yeah all right great thank you very much thanks for joining us on this review of arboretum we hope you enjoyed this episode of dragon's demise be sure to check out our interview with ben rossett up now on iTunes, Stitcher, and all of our other media. And we hope that you join us next time for our review of The Dragon and Flagon.